This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You may be able to buy a driverless car as soon as 2020. That's when Audi plans to release its first fully autonomous vehicle. Well, this year, the first bill to regulate them statewide has passed the legislature with bipartisan support. The bill is on its way to the governor. Senator Owen Hill, Republican from El Paso County, is a co-sponsor. I spoke with him in his office. Senator, thank you for meeting with us. Ryan, thanks for taking the time. What are some of the things you've had to learn, maybe even forecast or imagine about self-driving cars to be able to write this bill? There are a whole bunch of questions out there. What do we do with insurance? What happens when it snows or it rains or you have chain laws in the mountains? And we very quickly came to realize our inability to answer these questions meant we had to have a very light touch here early on. We had to make sure that we weren't going to regulate these out of existence before we even had time to answer a lot of these questions. This bill is not a comprehensive list of rules for autonomous vehicles. A lot of that is going to be worked out in the future. It's fascinating. The chain law, I, it never even occurred to me. You have an autonomous vehicle, whose job is it to put the chains on on I-70? That's exactly right. And we have move-over laws here that I think everyone's very familiar with. Tragically, we had a couple of troopers last year uh, were, were hit. Well, how do you deal with move-over laws? In fact, we had a recently, I don't know if you heard about auto, O-T-T-O. It was a truck that drove itself yes. once it got on the freeway, a beer delivery from Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs. Because they could not comply with that move-over law, they worked with Department of Transportation and State Patrol. They did it 3 o'clock in the morning with like nine patrol cars, lights blaring all along, just to make sure if anything came up that people were in control and could make a difference. Are you more excited or worried about a driverless car future? I'm really excited. Uh, There's so many different opportunities, especially on the safety side. When you look at current stats, 93% of all accidents are caused by human error. So even if we could just cut those down a little bit, we're talking about lives saved. Um, We're talking about potentially reducing the number of drunk drivers on the road or driving while high, right, as we have to deal with here in Colorado now. So there are so many potential opportunities here. And as many people, Ryan, as I hear say they love to drive, I've never yet had anyone tell me they love to commute. Yeah, it's a very different thing being on the open road than being on I-25 in bumper-to-bumper traffic. So this bill does do one big thing. Uh, In the opening line, it states that this is the state's domain, essentially. Quote, local authorities are prohibited from regulating these systems. Why declare the state the center of power? Just like all, I mean, we're really just doing the same as all other driving laws here in Colorado. When it, this is a technology that people are putting into cars, whether it's anti-lock brakes, whether it's uh, airbags, whether it's adaptive cruise control. Um, so this technology is already here, and we're just acknowledging what exists for all cars already. So it's state, a matter of statewide concern. And the state is already the, the kind of keeper of that power? Absolutely. Okay, so that's not a new role for the state? It's not a new role, and we just want to clarify that, let's say you buy a car, one of these new Audis with adaptive cruise control. There are times when you can put it in a mode where it will automatically follow the car in front of you, say on the freeway and stop and go traffic. Oh yeah, that's here now, right? Right. We do want to make sure that we don't come up with a situation where you cannot drive from Colorado Springs to Denver because some municipality or county in between has decided we're not comfortable with this yet. At a Senate floor hearing last month, Senator Steve Fenberg, a Democrat from Boulder, said not letting cities regulate driverless cars to some extent could have some unintended consequences? It would mean that a city would never be able to do such a thing as uh, as simple as saying certain parking is designated for these vehicles and other parking is designated for human 
drivers. Uh, and, and that might seem crazy at first, but if you think about it, the way these vehicles are probably going to be used are they're going to be dropping people off and then coming back and picking people up. They don't need to have, let's say, downtown parking. And I think a city should be able to say the parking lot on the outskirts of town is for all, uh, the, these autonomous vehicles. Parking downtown are for humans that are trying to get to their movie or get to the, go into their restaurant. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, some people think out loud when they make statements in the Senate. Um, oh, my. Right. Okay. As, as I say, these are already laws here. I mean, it just it, it shows the importance of diving into the specific subject matter uh, expertise. We, we already have. But, but could the state being the center of power usurp a municipality's no. ability to designate parking? No, just like we're already doing here, right? You have the, the car to goes, right? Oh. You have rules where they could park at any meter. We have spots that's electric vehicle only. We have expectant mothers parking. We're already doing that. So we're just saying we're not, we're not making any new changes here in terms of our ability in Colorado to regulate these. But we are saying a municipality couldn't come out and say, autonomous uh, vehicles could not use certain truck routes or the speed limit for, you know, a car with such and such technology uh, is 25, yet for all other vehicles, it's 45. Other opponents had more, I don't know, philosophical concerns about this legislation, like Senator Andy Kerr, a Democrat from Jefferson County. Um, Here he is explaining why during a Senate floor hearing last month. If we're going to be running legislation right now to prepare our state for these changes in technology. We also need to be preparing our state for the changes in employment. And these truck drivers and these cab drivers that will not have jobs in the future, we need to start planning that right now. I know the legislation's been amended to include this issue. Talk a little bit about the potential for, you know, real changes in employment here. You know, when I was, uh, so my background's economics, and I had a, a professor would always tell me, oh, when all economic models are wrong, sometimes they're useful. Uh, we, we are so bad at predicting what's going to happen. Forget years down the road, just talking about months down the road. So I think it's important to be very humble in what kind of predictions we make. Many folks said that the You're AT- not ready to paint a dire picture, is that what I'm Absolutely hearing? not. So many people were willing to say when ATMs came out that we were going to put all these bankers out of business. It turns out we actually have more bankers employed now, more tellers employed now than before the ATM. You see what happened was we couldn't really economically afford to pay someone to count dollar bills and roll coins and all. Well, when you have a machine that can do that for you, call it an ATM, we can actually afford to pay these people to interact with a customer on a more regular basis. So there are so many of these examples where technology actually frees people up to do what they do best. Isn't that a rosy view, though? I mean, speak to the truck driver who's quivering in his... You know, I had a great conversation with a neighbor of mine who, uh, who drives trucks, and he said, oh, and I am so excited about this technology, because right now there's all these regulations about how long I can drive, when I can and can't drive. And he said, I don't want to be driving at 2 o'clock in the morning, trying to keep my eyes open, drinking Red Bull, uh, you know, driving on I-70. If something can do that better for me so they can pay me to do what I do best, namely maneuvering in traffic or when I get into town or unloading or interacting. and That's so- a kind of hybrid picture. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Senator Owen Hill, Republican from El Paso County. You know, one of the issues you raised at the outset was what happens if if a car that is autonomous is in a crash. 
Are you any closer to knowing what the answer is? We are, actually. We, we ran an amendment to clarify that liability is not going to change with the passage of this bill. So right now there are processes for, if you remember the, uh, the Priuses where the stuck accelerator, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. There was a process for dealing with the technology separate from the driver. We, we have great processes for that. We're going to be using those processes in these cases. You think that the framework already exists? The framework certainly does. We're really just talking about an, an evolution of technology here in the next couple of years. We're not talking about a revolution in the technology yet. Why does it feel like a revolution? You know, it's easy to think about, you know, where we're going to be 10 or 20 years from now. But just like we didn't jump straight to the iPhone 7, we started with a flip phone. We started with very basic technology. But recognize that that laws can keep up with that, and we did not want to get out ahead of it and prevent some of this innovation from happening just because we try to deal with these things too early. Your faith in government is... uh Surprising. Perhaps it's my, my faith. This is why I'm a conservative, Ryan. It's, it's my faith in the people that already exist across the spectrum. We've got insurance agents. We've got manufacturers. We've got, uh, we do have government regulators. We do have CDOT and State Patrol. All of those folks working together, we should be very slow on the government side to upend those relationships, to make too many changes when we don't know exactly what's going to happen. This bill underscores the fact that if a particular technology can't comply with current driving laws, uh, that they're to seek a special exemption or uh, testing from the state. Is that right? Just briefly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, setting it up with Department of Transportation and State Patrol to make sure we are protecting people because the rules of the road uh, do a pretty good job of that right now. That is State Senator Owen Hill, Republican from El Paso County. His bill dealing with self-driving cars is on its way to the governor. If cooking dinner last night stressed you out, here's what you need to know about Michael Bucker. As director of food for Google, he's the boss of 56 kitchens around the world that serve 110,000 people a day. That number will grow by the end of the year when Google adds more than 1,000 employees at a new campus in Boulder. Bucker is in town this week to speak at the World Affairs Conference in Boulder. And welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Great to be here. When I think of Google, I think of uh, awfully smart people, many of them working long or perhaps odd hours. Is there such a thing as uh, Google brain food to sustain them? I think what we do is offer a wide variety of actually food choices that appease probably the diversity of the population that we have. So it goes from a great salad to a great meat entree, to actually the indulgences that all of us long for as well. So it is a wide variety of good stuff that we offer in our offices all over the world. Indulgences, pizza and ice cream, I'm, I'm thinking. Absolutely. <laughs> I think there's a place for all of that. Uh, not everyone works at a place that provides food for them. Uh, so it doesn't sound necessarily like Google dictates what someone's diet has to be. What do you think is the fundamental idea behind feeding employees? I think it really goes back to the founding of our uh, company. So when Larry and Sergey only like 19 years ago, started to create the company. They wanted to create a family-based organization. And they felt strongly then, as they still do today, that you do great things with your family. You eat together. So 
when we started, we hired our 56th employee to be our first chef, Charlie Ayers. And so food has been a part of our culture literally from the beginning. And we provide great food for a variety of reasons. So one is we really believe that people come together over a good meal or they bump into each other when they wait for their coffee. Mm. And I think the second big reason for what we do is we believe that a person just feels better and is able to be at his best when he or she is well nourished. So we provide great food in our environments to really enable people to be at their best. Not so much to work longer hours or shorter hours. It's really, it is about the individual. You mentioned uh, Larry and Sergey. This is Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the co-founders of Google. You're feeding about 20,000 employees a day at Google headquarters, which is also called Googleplex in Mountain View, California. Um, and you talk about the idea of almost camaraderie over food. Do you have any evidence that those interactions make for a better product uh, or workplace? Has this been studied? You know, for us being a data-driven organization, it is surprising that we don't have the hard evidence to say, as a result of these five great meals that happened at Date X, the following products either were developed or became better. But I think the counterpoint to that is, um, there is this, I would say, winning formula that has made our company great over the years. And Googlers, so those of us who work for Google, have indicated over the years through different surveys, whether that will be our annual Google Guys, our employee satisfaction survey, or every other year we do our survey called Google Leads, where we ask our employees what they think about food and the impact it has on their performance and what they work on. And year over year, they continue to indicate that food is absolutely integral to the way they work and the way they look at Google as an employer. So no hard data where we can say, as a result of these five, six, ten great meals, product X, Y, or Z became bigger and better. But I think overall, it has been just, it's a core driver of our culture and our work dynamics, Ryan. You are feeding folks three meals a day, uh, often for free. And um, I wonder what the challenges are of doing that in the various places where Google operates, because uh, cultures and cuisines and taste buds differ from place to place, don't they? Totally. So as a starting point, we now operate in 56 countries around the world. And then the great team members that make up Google Food uh, now serve over what you mentioned earlier, 115,000 individuals. And in almost all of our offices, we offer lunch, in many breakfasts, and in some we offer dinner as well. The workforce or the population per office does vary. So our, op our office population in Sydney is different from the one we have in Hyderabad, India, or in London, New York, over here in Boulder. But as our users are so engaged with our program and what we're serving, we get feedback from them on a daily basis about what they are looking for, what they liked, what they didn't like, and where we can make actually improvements. So I have the pleasure, at, I can jokingly at times say, <laughs> of working for an organization where you have another than 15,000 food critics who will share with you on a daily basis what they think about what you have done for them today. Give me an example of something that didn't go over well in Hyderabad or something. 
Oh, you get all kinds of questions about where you pro- the ingredients are coming from and whether a dish is truly cooked in the traditional way, um, whether you're serving enough vegan or vegetarian dishes, or why are we having seen more of X. So the feedback truly, truly varies, and I think it's a sign of the engagement of our users, and they really, really care. So I think the fun part of what I do is you interact with a very engaged and very thoughtful population that knows more about food than I think many individuals I've worked with in the past. What a diplomatic way to put it, Michael Bucker. We're speaking with the the director of Google Food. He's uh, in Colorado to speak at the Conference on World Affairs in Boulder. And uh, we're speaking with him as well, ahead of the Google campus that will be opening in Boulder and serve uh, about a thousand employees. Um, You know, I think the skeptic might hear all that Google provides nutritionally for its workers and... uh, Say, gosh, this is about keeping your employees captive and close to their desks so they don't leave campus. Uh, how do you respond? I've heard that before. And I would say our users are very independent in their thinking. So even if we would try, they would never act that way because they're independent thinkers. So that would be one. I think my second response would be, Ryan, is that we enable people to be at their best, whether that's at work in the private time or whatever they want to do. And what we're trying to do is remove friction in much of their life as possible and at the same time and enable them to work at the hours they would like to work. So as you mentioned earlier, some of our workers, uh, engineers might come in a little later and therefore they're looking for some great food in the afternoon. Yeah. So it is not that we are expecting people to show up early and leave late. It is literally the time that you allocate it to your work. We're going to make sure is that during that time frame, you get all the support that you need so you can be at your best. Are there lessons you've learned feeding Googlers, as you call Google employees, that you think, I don't know, the the wider, the broader food community could learn from? I think maybe two great examples. So the first one is, if you're thinking about making change, I would always say make the change better than what you have as of today, because we human beings don't like have things taken away. So if you want to move people, for example, from a more meat-centered diet to a more plant-centric or plant-forward diet, Mm -hmm. make sure that the alternative is just more exciting, more delicious, just bigger and better. I think the second one I would say is that the food context in which we make food decisions on a daily basis really makes a difference. And in our world, we believe in the freedom of choice. So we're not going to tell you what you can and cannot eat. But we can help you with actually food choice architecture in actually changing the context in which we present food, yeah. what you see first. Food, in helping what did you, you make call it? Better. Architecture? Explain that term for me. Food choice architecture. So, for example... If you would go to a great restaurant, uh-huh. if you look at the menu, what you see first might be ultimately what you're going to order. Very similar in a buffet restaurant. Whatever you see first will very likely end on a lot of plates first. And if we believe that we should actually probably are benefiting from eating more veggies or more great salads, we can help you in our cafe to actually make the salad station the focal point of our cafe. Oh. And therefore, what you ultimately see, the visual cues, are helping you to say, that looks really, really great. I'm going to have some of that. 
So these cues really help people to make these unconscious food choices that we make so many of on a daily basis. Fascinating. I think about how much psychology goes into the grocery store, and that can be true of places like um, a, a, a corporate cafeteria. Uh, you're in Boulder at the Conference on World Affairs to talk about food sustainability. Can you give me an example before we go in about the last minute of how that plays out at Google, food sustainability? So we're very thoughtful of what we buy, from which suppliers, and why. Um, and obviously, every dollar that you spend has implications. Do you spend it locally? Do you spend it with a great producer a couple of states away? Really thinking through all of that, as well as thinking through, might there be other teams at Google that might help us with making better, ultimately, procurement choices? It is very, very complex these days. Um, and when you think about sustainability, for us, it's not just the environmental sustainability. It is thinking about ultimately social equity as well and really thinking through where might we have the biggest impact with our procurement dollars. So it's a, it's a complex uh, subject these days, but it's definitely not just environmental sustainability, Ryan. And it sounds like you can rely on some of the big brains at Google who are not necessarily associated with food service to help solve some of those problems. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. He is Michael Bucker, director of Google Food, and he's in Colorado for the Conference on World Affairs at CU Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you think shutting off the fountains at the Bellagio in Vegas or ripping out all the grass in Arizona will solve the West's water problems, think again. That's what David Owen found after traveling the Colorado River end-to-end past farms and dams, power plants and cities. Owen's new book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and for the magazine, he also spoke with President Trump, then a candidate, and asked about the West's water future. He'll share some of that with us as well. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. I want to clarify that you did this by road, not by boat. Right. I was yeah. not. I, I, I got wet only when I stuck my hand into the river. Okay. A series of rental cars here. Uh, what did you expect to see along the river? Uh, what I was hoping to see is, is just where the water comes from in the river and where it goes. The Colorado is perfect for that kind of uh, experiment because you know it's long. It's 1,400 miles long, but it's, uh, it's not endless. It's the Mississippi's 1,000 miles longer, and uh, it, uh, every couple of weeks it carries as much water as the Colorado does an entire year. Oh, wow. Uh, and yet the Colorado is extraordinarily important to a huge part of the country. Almost 40 million people uh, depend on water from it, 6 million acres of agriculture. Uh, and that irrigated agriculture is on uh, on land that was created by the Colorado it, itself. Uh, uh, Arizona and Southern California farming takes place on on soil that's that's pretty much what's missing from the Grand Canyon. The the river spread it around, and and now we grow stuff on it. And of course, the Colorado River is not just uh, ours; it's Mexico's as well. Right. There was some there was some uh, dispute about that. The United States didn't initially think that Mexico necessarily deserved any of the Colorado, even though it flows through uh, Mexico. The other interesting thing about the Colorado is that it doesn't get all the way to the end anymore. Uh, Not very far over the the, the Mexican border, it just 
it comes to an end. And the reason is that we use it all up. An- another reason that, that studying the Colorado is interesting because you can, you can account for pretty much every drop of water that is in it to start with. That's right. And so there's actually a lot of what you call paper water. That is water in theory that people don't actually have access to. I love that term, paper water. Yeah, the West is the West is unusual. The the entire legal structure about water is different from what it is in the rest of the country and in the world. And uh, there are more legal claims on water in the Colorado River, the paper water, uh, than there is wet water, which is what you and I think of as water. So there have been some uh, amazingly complex legal battles, uh, including one of the longest uh, Supreme Court cases ever that have to do with uh, disputes between states over who gets what. That's right. One revelation you have along this journey was about palm trees in Los Angeles. This is, I think, where your son lives. Yes, it is. Uh, he lives in L.A., and I'm, I'm ashamed of myself for never thinking about this, but it was as I was driving to Los Angeles, uh, sort of at the end of my journey from Mexico, and I realized that, you know, I've always thought that I have friends in L.A. and You make a gin and tonic, you walk out into your yard and you pluck a lime from your lime tree and you have these beautiful flowers and there are palm trees uh, along your driveway. And I realized that none of that stuff was there. That's, that's all, those are all the products of irrigation uh, in the early years. L.A. was a desert. In the early years, they took uh, irrigation water from the Los Angeles River and, and they pumped it from the ground until that went dry. But a lot of that water comes from the Colorado River. So... A few years ago, my, I have a photograph of my wife and me standing on uh, an Independence Pass uh, with the, the snow behind us. And, um, you know, that some of that snow was on its way to Mexico and on its way to Southern California. Uh, and I suppose that there is a knee-jerk reaction people have, which is to say, oh, just pull out the palm trees and, and you know, again, stop the fountains at the Bellagio and you'll be set. The Colorado will have enough river water. Why isn't it? that easy. Well, hey, you know, we could each anybody can think of the one thing, you know, just stop growing almonds or if you live if you live uh, on the west slope, all you have to do is get rid of all the cities on the east slope in Colorado, just get rid of Denver right. and, and Boulder. I think there's been a lot of attention to growing hay in places that, you know, eventually get shipped to China. Right, exactly. The irrigation water that we're shipping actually shipping this water embedded uh, in it. But as with all these things, it's always ends up being more complicated than it than it seems when you look at it from the surface. There are people People who live in uh, Boulder and Denver don't necessarily want to uh, pack up and move someplace else. Uh, we uh, we ha- do a significant trade in uh, in agricultural products with other countries and forage forage crops are some of those. Uh, the the Bellagio fountains in Las Vegas don't actually use that much water, none of it from the Colorado River, and yet it's a huge source of economic vitality uh, for Las Vegas. So how you feel about that depends on how you feel about the economic vitality of Las Vegas. But but all these all these issues are complex. Yeah, and a lot of them are about quality of life. You heard from the head of Denver Water that you know, trees in town are an important part of the quality of life here. Yes, it's true. And if you if you drive a little ways to the east uh, outside of Denver, you see what Denver would look like without irrigation water. Uh, the grass, the it's not just the golf courses, the grass, the trees, the, they all depend on water that has been brought either from underground or from other places. Yeah, I think of what the state historian Patty Limerick has said, which is that 
everyone here, or most everyone here, is from somewhere else. And they often came from the East Coast, where they were used to green lawns and uh, and leafy canopies, and they brought those sentiments with them. They did, and it also, you know, it makes a difference. It, it, it you, in, I was remember being in Las Vegas and walking onto the campus of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and just stepping off the sidewalk into the quadrangle, which was a, a broad lawn with big trees. The temperature dropped, you know, it was twenty degrees. It felt like a completely different place, and it was. It was a different uh, microclimate, and if if there were still, you know, sand blowing around in the the streets of Denver, it wouldn't necessarily feel like the Denver that it feels like today. These current water shortages are, I think, easiest to see when you visit Lakes Powell and Mead, these two giant reservoirs that are like savings accounts for the states along the Colorado River Basin. Uh, certainly, you read before this trip about their depletion, but what was it like to actually visit? Mm. It's a... Uh, I have a, I have a, I have a, Lake Mead and Hoover Dam are two of my favorite places in the world. Uh, and when, I t- when my uh, daughter graduated from college and my son graduated from high school, uh, my wife and I took them on a trip to the West. It was the last big family trip and we rented an RV in Las Vegas. And the first stop was Hoover Dam, which I've always loved. And there, my son took a picture of me standing sort of slack-jawed in front of a diorama of the construction of Hoover Dam. <laughs> and I, I learned later that my wife was whispering to my daughter, don't worry, it won't all be like this. Uh, but it's a, it's an amazing uh, engineering feat. And, and the lake is a, extraordinarily beautiful, even in its current condition, which is... Yeah, describe that for us at Lake Mead. It's uh, Lake Mead is missing more than half of its water at the, at the moment. It's down to about 38% of what it contained at the turn of the millennium. And you can see this very vividly because there's a big white stripe that runs around the edge of it, the, the famous bathtub ring. ring. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, I just flew over it. And it is, you, it's, it's clear from the air as well. It's in, in many ways, it's even more chilling to look at the back of Hoover Dam because you can see so much of it. Uh, you can see the huge towers that are the intake towers that, or the outlet towers that draw water from the lake and run it through the power plants on the other side. And uh, they used to just be the tops of them sticking above the surface of the water. And now you feel as though you're looking down into the depths. It's interesting that you call these some of your favorite places because there are plenty of environmentalists, for instance, who see Hoover Dam and who see these reservoirs as, you know, huge mistakes in our history. You have to, you know, you, I think it's it's impossible not to have mixed feelings about them. You know, Hoover Dam was one of the most remarkable construction projects ever. In 1930 uh, it was when construction began. The construction of the Empire State Building began at the same time. Nobody knew how to build something as big as either of those things. Uh, the country, people were out of jobs. People came from all across the country to work on them. They worked for nothing and in these extraordinarily dangerous jobs to build that that dam. Uh Amazingly, it was interesting to me that the demand for Hoover Dam came not from uh, from people who wanted to store water, but from people who wanted to stop the river from uh, from uh, inundating their farm fields. So it was farmers downstream in Southern California who wanted some uh, wanted a hand on the faucet of the Colorado River. Uh, since then, the, we've it's it's main use now is as a stockpile of water for those same. For those same regions, and to generate hydroelectricity, and, and to generate yeah. much of which goes to move water from one place to another. Oh, interesting! Right, it's a sort of self-supporting system in that way. Um, so, at Lake Mead near Las Vegas, you met some people who own marinas to cater to tourists, and I was interested to read that they feel like there's been apocalyptic reporting. Uh, that's a quote about the Colorado River, and uh, that it may be hurting their business. 
People yeah. expect to see a thimble of water <laughs> at, at Lake Mead. You know, there's, and as they said, there's still a lot of water in this lake, and, it, and it's true. But you can't see it without you can't see the lake without being without feeling concerned. And one of the marina owners was interesting because his he'd had to move his marina; it had been there forever. Uh, because the the place where it had formerly been anchored was now shoreline. Uh, right, it was more beach than marina. Yes, it uh-huh. was. Uh, uh, in Colorado, much of the water that feeds the Front Range comes from west of the Continental Divide. And uh, for Denver, most of it's stored in Dillon Reservoir near Silverthorne, not far from Keystone. Your description of how that reservoir was built about 50 years ago was really vivid. So I wonder if you could just read a bit of that for us. Uh, sure. This is about the tunnel that brings the, the water uh, under the Continental Divide. It's 10 feet in diameter and uh, 23 miles long. Uh, digging it took six years, during which mining crews worked on it continuously, sometimes in 12-hour shifts, and mainly used pickaxes, jackhammers, and dynamite. They dug in four directions at once, from both ends toward the center and from the center toward both ends. The crews working from the center reached their starting point under the town of Montezuma by descending a thousand-foot vertical shaft, which they had to dig first. Uh, that tunnel, incidentally, is, is one of many structures in water moving uh, water moving pieces of infrastructure in the West is named after a lawyer because uh, uh, very often the the key person in a water project was the lawyer who figured out a way to to pull it off. Who is that lawyer? His name was Harold Harold D. Roberts. He established uh, D- Denver's right to to that water. Dillon Reservoir is looked at very differently. Um, if you live on the west side of the divide and the east yes. side of the divide, what does it represent to people who are on the western side of the Rockies? People on the western side view it as theft by uh, by people on the east. Um, the you still people will shake their fists and and feel angry about it. Um, the at the same time though, those same people depend very heavily on people who live on the east side of the mountains. Uh, and would be very unhappy if the people who lived on the east side of the mountains, uh, you know, packed up and moved to moved to the west and said, "Well, you know, where do you want to where do you want to put us, uh, so that we don't have to move our water over the mountains?" It's uh, uh, like many relationships involving water; it's a complicated one. Uh, if you're in, if you're in the Grand Valley growing peaches or growing grapes, uh, you depend. You're not so much making um, your living from what you're growing as you are from the people coming from east of the mountains to to visit, to ride bikes, to visit the restaurants, to drink wine in your in your uh, in your tasting room. Right, that's your customer base in many respects. Yes, exactly. Right now, Utah is trying to get approval for a new pipeline to take more water from the Colorado River. It's entitled to that water per the Interstate Compact. But but it would still be another draw on a river, as you've mentioned, that's already over-allocated, that paper water idea again. Where does that Utah thing stand, and, and how much of an impact would it have? It's uh, The Utah project, which is the, the, to draw water from, the, from Lake Powell and take it, uh, take it, take it north into Utah, uh, it's been underway for a while. It, it, the stage it's at now is securing federal approval to do it. Uh, it's a good example of what of the dilemma that that the West faces. Utah has a right by the agreement of 1922, when this when the seven uh, Colorado River states divided up the river, Utah has a right to more water than it currently takes. Uh, but the challenge is that the there isn't enough water to satisfy. To, if everybody who took if every state took all the water they're entitled to by that agreement, uh, the 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 river couldn't handle it. Um, so something has to give at some point and. 
uh, it's difficult because a state can say, look, here, I have, uh, I have this piece of paper that says I'm, I'm entitled to this, to this water. And yet at the same time, uh, you have dangerously low reservoirs uh, down, farther downstream. Indeed, as you've said and as you've seen. David Owen of The New Yorker is with us. His new book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. He followed the Colorado River from its start to its finish, which is a rather dry place, and writes about it in this book. Uh, you touch on a lot of environmental issues. What stands out about water to you as an environmental issue today? What I think the what the main thing that about water is that water is never just about water. Uh, it's part of a whole complex of issues that have to do with uh, governance, that have to do with climate, that have to do with uh, urban development. Uh, one of the big challenges is that as we get better at using water, uh, it's what we do with the water that we save. And sometimes if a community becomes uh, – uses less water as many, many co- communities have been able to do, yeah. if we just take that water and invest it in the construction of new sprawling communities, uh, new subdivisions, uh, we may have – We've, we've solved the water problem in one way because we're getting more value from every gallon of water that we use, but we've created a different environmental problem. And there isn't really – there isn't any really any way for people like, for example, urban planners and water managers to work together toward uh, coming up – toward handling land use in a way that, that makes sense in both directions. This is one of the most fascinating things, I think, in your book, which is what you call the, the perverse effects or the potentially perverse effects of saving water. And you liken it to saving up for a trip. So you, I don't know, you're, you're, you're very um, uh, conscious about not spending, and, and then you have enough money to fly to Vegas, and you wind up spending way more money than you would because you're gambling and you're eating and you're, you're sort of... <laughs> Uh, living past your means. And so what was the value of saving because you've actually spent more than you have and that there are parallels to water conservation? There are. And there, the very often water that's wasted in, in the view of, you know, say, water to, excess water that's flood irrigated onto an agricultural field. Uh, often that wa- excess water has uh, has environmental value. Maybe it soaks into the ground and replenishes a, a, an aquifer that supports a surface stream. Or in the case of uh, the, the, a canal that carries water from the Colorado River to Southern California, uh, water leaking from that canal supported a, an ecosystem and a, and a farming area in northern Mexico that then had water troubles is when the United States lined part of that canal with concrete and the leaking stopped. Huh. Uh, with any efficiency issue, uh, this, inv- this is true of energy too, uh, the, the, the real impact of gains in efficiency depends on what you do with what you save. And so the, the example that I give in the book had to do with my wife and me when, uh, when home heating oil got to be almost $5 a gallon where I live. Uh, my wife and I got very good at uh, turning off lights. I, uh, I, I completed insulation projects in, my, in our, our house, which is 200 years old, that I'd been meaning to do for 20 years. Uh, you know, I drove less. I did all these things. And we saved a significant amount of money, which, uh, as you mentioned, we then spent on a trip to Europe. So what we had really done was uh, transmute natural gas into jet fuel. And if, huh. and if, 
if that's all you do, then you haven't you haven't really advanced. You feel as though you've been busy solving an environmental problem, and you've really just been shifting money from one pocket to the other. And so often in the water conversation, agriculture in particular is villainized um, because of its intensive water use. And yet, uh, again, the picture is not so simple. Right. Yeah, we eat. Um, it's definitely true that the uh, uh, 80% of the water in the Colorado Basin goes to agriculture. Denver, uh, the, the head of Denver Water estimated to me that Denver uses maybe 2% of the water in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So when people you know, look at, look at ways to save, it inevitably the focus falls on agriculture. And yet, you know, if, if, you, if you eat, if you eat your greens during the winter, you're eating uh, lettuce and onions and other fruits and vegetables that uh, come from uh, very uh, almost inevitably from farmland that's irrigated with Colorado River water from from Southern California, from Northern Mexico. Uh, it, it's all a it's all a big web of of in, interrelationships, uh, and then communities that depend on those on those the people who are growing those crops. It's not just us. Uh, eating or not eating our salad. It's uh, it's all these other relationships that, that uh, among different communities in different states. Uh, David Owen, we mentioned two nations that are along the Colorado River, so the United States and Mexico, but we really ought to talk about Indian nations as well, because if you, if you truly were talking about like prior appropriation and who had first rights, um, my, they would lay claim, wouldn't they? Yes, and uh, the when the when the seven states divided up the river, they only barely mentioned Mexico, and they only barely mentioned the tribes. Uh, the Supreme Court had had actually ruled in the early part of the twentieth century that, uh, in effect, that the United States would not have moved uh, Indian tribes onto reservations if they had not intended for them to be able to. Uh, execute this new lifestyle, new agricultural lifestyle that they were supposed to support themselves by. And so the the tribes in the West have theoretical rights to a huge amount of water. Mm -hmm. Their claims on the water precedes uh, any of the the priority claims uh, of of the states that divide it up, but are theoretical rights rights? What I mean, that's uh, there's, an important. There's a lot. Of, there's, right? It's even this is even flimsier paper water than some of the other paper water because in order to get that, in order to make use of that water, they would need the kinds of infrastructure projects that, uh, you know, things like Hoover Dam, like uh, uh, like Parker Dam, like the big diversions, and uh, those not only don't happen anymore, but through history, they the federal government has not has not engaged in projects like that for the benefit of the of Native Americans. Do you have some sense that Indian nations might be the solution to some of the water issues that the states are facing? Uh, I don't know if it would be the solution. They, they, they may be the conclusion to some of the some of the issues that they're saying. In Arizona, for example, the uh, tri, uh, Indian reservations in Arizona have a claim on a huge amount of Arizona's full allotment of Colorado River water. Uh, the one thing that uh, tribes have done is because of the difficulty of getting that wet water is to uh, basically settle uh, for, for, for something else, to settle for less than, than, than they might have gotten if they pursued their full legal right in the courts. But these are all this stuff is still being worked out. Mm. Uh, the, the, uh, and it's, it's fascinating. It's it's there's it's a it's a huge overhanging claim on on water that that we increasingly understand isn't really that there isn't really as much of as we thought there was at one point. We're speaking with David Owen. His new book is Where the Water Goes: Life and Death Along the Colorado River. 
When President Trump was a candidate, you talked with him about water issues in the West. We what, did. What were his thoughts? We, we did. Well, we Trump and I actually played golf together uh, about five years ago. And if I had, I had no idea, never would have thought that. I just I couldn't predict the future, but we talked again, and we talked we talked about water because we were talking about water on some of the golf courses he owns, and uh, and I was writing about water, so I asked him I asked him some questions about it, and he said he said you know the solution for California all they have to do is they have to you know pipe it down from the north they got nothing but water up there, and I said well it would have to be a big pipe, and he said well it wouldn't have to be all that big they've got they've got all this water. Uh, and then he said, or there's that thing, there's that thing with the oceans. Uh, what's that? I said, oh, desalination. He said, yeah, desalination. He said, which gets expensive, by the way. So I think it's, it's sort of his level of understanding of, of those issues. I think probably based on the past, uh, the events of the past few days, my advice to environmental groups seeking uh, help from the current administration uh, would be to make your case in pictures, not in words, and to meet with him personally because he seems to – uh, he has a hard time saying no to people that who are sitting directly across from him. So that, that's my advice based on my round of golf with him. Well, I'd like to follow up on, on desal, desalination, because there California sits next to an enormous body of water, you know, and nary a drop to drink. But w- what's the status of, of desal? Uh, it's, desal is tough because it's, it is expensive. Uh, energy re- intensive, isn't it? Energy intensive. You have to, you have to force water to do something, salt water to do something that it, does not want to do, which is to, you have to f- push it through a filter that's fine enough to catch the salt, which is dissolved in it. So it has to, it takes energy to do that. Uh, San Diego has a new uh, ocean to freshwater desal plant. Uh, before that, the only one in the United States was in Tampa, Florida, and uh, the 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 example of the Tampa. Um, facility, which I took a tour of a number of years ago, is instructive because they had to shut it down almost immediately because they clogged up the, the membranes, the reverse osmosis membranes with, with just stuff that was in the water that they were pumping through it. And uh, they had to rebuild everything and they had to completely change there, and, and it, which they eventually did. But it still produces a pretty small amount of water. Mm. Uh, and it's more expensive to produce than others. So there are pl- parts of the world, Dubai gets all its water from desal. Israel gets a huge amount of uh, its water from desal. Uh, but it's it's t- it's no it's nobody's first choice. And it's also it's a it's an energy consuming activity that we don't engage in to a large extent already, which means that it it sort of pushes in the opposite direction from efforts to uh, to create renewable energy sources. It's it just it's it pushes the finish line a little farther ahead. Because it increases total consumption, you're saying. Are yeah. there other parts of the world in worse shape than the Western United States? Can we can we take some comfort by looking elsewhere? We definitely can. And in, in, in the United States, we we're as we are in so many ways, we're we are rich in resources, including water resources, even in the West. I mean, uh, you point to Syria, actually, don't you? Syria, yes. And the, you know, there's a case that can be made that the 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 civil war in Syria was precipitated by a water shortage. Yeah, how so? Uh, the agriculture in Syria had drained the aqua, aquifer that supported it. That prompted a major migration from the agricultural areas to the city. You have lots of angry, unemployed young men, which is always a recipe for trouble. And so I don't know that you would say that it caused uh, the Civil War, but it was definitely a, a 
contributing factor. And in fact, if you look at look through history, uh, uh, resource conflicts lie at or near the heart of many of the major conflicts around the world. Uh, it's the it's and they're be becoming more fraught as the population of the world grows, and as we become more accustomed to living the way we're we're happy to live, uh, all those pressures increase. Thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Oh, thank you. David Owen has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1991, and we talked about his new book, Where the Water Goes. He has events in Fort Collins, Denver, and Boulder starting tonight. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. That's the program for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We are CPR News on Facebook. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.